The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Merry Christmas, everyone. uh, What a great program it's been so far. Let me ask all the kids, how many of you, before you came to church, opened your presents with your family? How many of you did that? Okay, how many of you have not opened your gifts yet and they're waiting for you at home? Okay, so for the second group, we'll try to keep this short. We're almost done. And then you get to go home and do what you really want to do, which is open your gifts. Uh, So appreciative of Ryan's testimony and what he shared just now. We, as he shared, uh, got to hear the full version of it at the men's retreat. I think it was so powerful and we're so moved by it that we, we wanted the whole church to hear this story of a legacy of one woman who um, committed everything to following Jesus and what the fruit of that decision meant to uh, what will be generations, I believe, uh, in this family line. The theme of this year's Advent has been on Jesus as the touchstone who exposes the essence of every person that he encounters. And each week we've been examining a different character in the Gospels to see how their response to Jesus revealed what was truly in their hearts. But perhaps more so than anyone else captured in the Gospel story, Mary was placed in one of the most challenging and confusing roles that could be asked of anyone. Being the mother of the very child who would grow up to become her Savior and Lord. Right after Jesus is born to Mary, these shepherds show up to pay homage to her son. And they tell Joseph and Mary what the angels had told them, that this child that was born to them was the long-awaited Messiah. In Luke chapter 2, verse 16 to 19, it says, So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. We're told that Mary treasured up these things that were being told to her by these shepherds and others about the nature of her child. This word treasured up is very interesting. It has this idea of keeping something very close to your heart, or another way you could describe it is to keep refreshing it in your memory so that you never forget. That word is also used when we talk about harboring a grudge against somebody. It's the sense that you just keep rekindling the memory of what someone did to you so that your anger against them never quite goes away. And in the same way it's saying that Mary would just dwell on these thoughts, these truths over and over again to try to understand what it means that her son is the Messiah. And a few days later after Jesus is born, this man Simeon would offer this prophecy that we read earlier uh, during the Advent candle readings. In Luke chapter 2 verse 34 to 35, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he says this to Mary specifically, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. In other words, he had a special message for Mary and it was this, as the mother of the Messiah, you will not be spared from this testing 
that everyone will have to go through. In fact, this child that was born to you will lead you to a place of deep heartbreak in your own life. You know, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son. But what is so easy to forget in this Christmas story was that Mary was also asked to give up her son. And knowing the rest of the story, hearing this prophecy of Simeon, it's very easy to go to this end of the story of Mary at the foot of the cross as she bears the unimaginable pain of witnessing her son being crucified by the Romans. But the truth is that cross was the only the end of what would prove to be a really long and difficult journey for her, coming to understand what God was asking of her to give up her son. Because I think the truth is, like all parents, I'm sure Mary and Joseph had their own expectations of what it meant to start a family of their own together. They must have had hopes and dreams for their firstborn son, Jesus, along with all their other children. And yet from the moment that their son was born, it was clear that he would have a different purpose, a different mission marked out by God. And so Mary and Joseph were asked to give up their hopes and dreams for their son so that he could live out God's destiny in his life. And you get a sense of how confusing this was for them as parents in the only childhood story of Jesus that's recorded in the Gospels. When Jesus was 12 years old, the family traveled to Jerusalem like they did every year to celebrate the Passover. And after the festival was over, they were all going home and they assumed that Jesus was in this big traveling group, probably with extended relatives and neighbors. And they would travel an entire day before they realized it was sort of like Joseph and Mary, like, is he with you? No, he's not with me. Is he with you? And they have this home alone moment where they suddenly realize that they left Jesus in Jerusalem. And so frantically, they travel back to the capital city and they spend three entire days looking for him and they cannot find him anywhere. You can imagine as a parent the panic that would be in their hearts as they were imagining the worst-case scenarios of what could have happened to their son. But finally, they find him in the temple courts and they see him asking questions of these teachers of the law. And not only is he asking them questions, but he's answering his own questions and he's blowing them away because of his deep theological knowledge. And we find this captured in Luke's Gospel in chapter 2, verse 48 to 50. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. I think anyone who's a parent here can imagine the incredible confusion of relief and yet anger you would feel in that moment when you've discovered your lost kid, right? And so like any normal parent, they scold him and say, What did you do to us, ditching us like that? and not even saying anything. But what's interesting is that Jesus does not respond like a normal child ought to. Instead, in verse 49, it says, Why were you searching for me? He asked, Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. It's clear from the way they react to what Jesus is saying that Mary and Joseph are still struggling to understand what it means that they are raising the Messiah. And it's hard not to think that Mary remembered the words of Simeon in that moment. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. 
And so the struggle to be the parents of uh, Jesus would continue into his adulthood. And Mark's gospel captures this brief but fascinating moment that gives us a glimpse behind the scenes into what life was like for Jesus' family when he started his public ministry. Mark chapter 3, verse 20 to 21 says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. You can imagine how hard it must have been for Mary, the mother of Jesus, to sit on the sidelines and watch what was going on in her son's life as he was being pulled apart by these crowds in every direction so that he can't even eat a regular meal. He's so busy. And that just crossed the line for her. And she said, I've had enough. And she decides she's going to take custody of her adult child and basically declare him incompetent so that she could feed him, <laughs> make sure that he grows up normal. And, and what's so interesting is that as Jesus is getting more and more famous, it seems like his family is getting pushed to the side more and more. And you would think, Mary would think, as the mother, that she gets a privileged backstage pass to her now famous celebrity son anytime she wants. And so he's in this gathering and he's doing this teaching and there's this crowd and she just probably sends a messenger and says, tell her... Tell him his mom is waiting for him. And this is what he replies back to his family in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 to 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. As a parent, I can't even imagine how hurtful and offensive those words would have been if my own son said that to me. And again, you can imagine Mary thinking, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Jesus' intention was not to hurt or disrespect his family. But rather, he was trying to tell them what a radically new thing he had come to earth to do. Because even something as sacred as family would be totally redefined, not along bloodlines, but now by how every person responded to him as savior of the world. And so all of this brings us to the foot of the cross with Mary standing there, watching her son crucified. But what is interesting is standing next to Mary is Jesus' disciple John. And in John's gospel, he captures what occurred that day on the cross. In John chapter 19, verse 25 to 27, it says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And so even though Jesus was going to go away now and leave his family on the earth, 
What he was in essence saying was that through this death, he was creating a new family, which we know today as the church of Jesus Christ, as a place where we can experience still the love of God and be cared for and loved and know that we are never alone in this world. I think if you come to ICC, you know the story already that in high school, I felt a calling to be a missionary to Africa. And when I sensed the calling to be a, a missionary in Africa, the truth is, as a teenager, I was very, very stupid, you know, very naive. And I, I remember thinking, uh, of course my parents are going to support this because they're Christians. And why wouldn't they support me becoming a missionary in Africa? Because I wouldn't be a Christian if it wasn't for them anyway. And now, only years later, at being a parent myself, can I understand what a difficult journey that was for them to let me go and pursue what I believed to be my calling. Right after the summer of my junior year, I committed to going on a short-term mission trip to Kenya, Africa. And that trip did not begin by me jumping on an airplane to go to Kenya, but it started by me going to Florida, where for two weeks... I was in this purgatory known as the Lord's Boot Camp in 90-plus degree weather with 100% humidity in the middle of the summer. Uh, 2,000 teenage kids were gathered together to prepare to go to 50 different countries all around the world as short-term missionaries. And every morning we would be woken up at 5.45 a.m. to, I kid you not, revelry with a trumpet blasting. And from 5.45 a.m. until 10 p.m. at night when it was lights out, our entire day was spoken for doing obstacle courses and Bible studies and work projects and everything. And I had thought that I had made the biggest mistake of my life. And I wrote a letter to my brother, which he shared with my parents. And this is just an excerpt from that letter. I went through my archives and dug up everything from my days back then. And this was the part of the letter I wrote to him, dated June 20th, 1986. Boot camp is really tough. The cleanliness is what really gets me. Right after you wash yourself with the sulfur water, you sweat again. I go to bed slimy and wake up slimy. I have over 27 mosquito bites on my arms alone. I have tons more on my back, chest, legs, and neck. It's so depressing when my leaders do mail call and I don't get any letters. I have almost no free time here. What little free time I have, I spend rerunning the obstacle course because someone on our team gets us disqualified in the morning. Even though I could say millions of negative things, the one positive thing, serving the Lord, overshadows the others. Record some good movies. Don't forget to tell everyone to write. <laughs> so at the end of the two weeks, no matter how much a kid is miserable during those two weeks, they will not send them home. It's like prison. It literally was prison. Um, I don't know how legally they got away with this stuff, you know. Um, but this is what the directors of this mission organization said. The final night of these two weeks of boot camp is a commissioning service where all 2,000 kids are gathered in this tent and they have a commissioning service. And you have to light a candle that you're holding in your hand to say, I will go to the mission field. And if you do not light that candle, then no matter how much your parents protest and how many of your loved ones gave money so you could go on this trip, they said they will not put you on that airplane.
to go on that mission trip. They will not force any teenager to do though. And they said every year there's a handful of kids out of the 2,000 that don't light their candle. And I was determined that I was not going to light my candle. And hearing all this, my mother with her mother's heart <laughs> told my brother, let's get in the car and drive down there because my son needs me. And she, along with actually Betty's mother, who just recently passed away, uh, because Betty was on that same boot camp going to Haiti, um, got in a car and drove 24 hours straight to get from Chicago to Florida. And that summer, my mom would write me a series of letters expressing what she was going through in her own journey as a parent, letting me go and surrendering her child into the will of God. And the truth is, honestly, I never intended to ever share any of these letters with anyone. I never wanted it to be part of a sermon illustration because they're just too personal to me. They're something that's such a private moment with me and my mother, but for some reason during this Christmas holiday, I felt convicted to share some of what she wrote in her letters with you as part of this message. And after attending that commissioning service, this is she, what, what she wrote on July 3rd. How glad I was to have decided to have made the trip to see you. At first, I thought the trip must be too hard for me. However, I thought I must see you before you left. I can understand a lot better because I've seen the place with my own eyes. The commissioning service was beautiful. I am so proud of you enduring all the hard training and being so spiritual, so strong spiritually. God bless you, Steve. We pray God to be with you at all times and protect you and give you all the strength you need. Take care of yourself, son. We miss you. Love, mom. And she began to write to me these letters expressing the struggles that she was going through, letting me go. And July 6th, she wrote me this letter. We are so glad you are growing through this hardship. It hurts me when I think about you. The way you choose to walk is not an easy road at all. However, don't worry about me. I know through that tough road you will be blessed with more abundant life. I will also grow a lot through my prayer for you. Daddy is really proud of you. He thinks you are a very sincere and deep thinker and you practice your faith. And it's interesting because about a week later, she wrote me this letter regretting something she did when we were, um, when she came for my commissioning service in Florida. On July 11th, she wrote these words to me. At the commissioning service, I am sorry that I embarrassed you by holding you and walking with you when there was no one else doing the same thing. I couldn't think anything else but thinking you are really leaving to another country. That moment made me do that. I know sometimes I am lacking in thoughtful manners and make you embarrassed. I will try to think about your feelings before I get too old to change anything. What had happened was we were walking to the big tent for the commissioning service. And I was walking with my teammates and she was holding on to me with desperation. Because right after the commissioning service is over, you actually walk right out of that tent and board buses to go to the airport to fly to your country 
when you were gonna, where you were going to be served. And my mom couldn't bear the thought that this was her last moment holding on to me. And so she just clung to me. And what I never got to tell her was I wasn't embarrassed that day, but I was trying to be all manly as a teenage boy and not cry. But the fact that my mom was holding on to me was something I needed more than anything in that moment in my life. On July 21st, she would write these words to me as her struggle continued to grow in her heart. As the days are going by, I miss you more and more. I really want to hug you. I wish someday we could all go to Kenya for vacation and see the place you are now. I will make your favorite food and stuff the refrigerator for you. I miss, miss you, Steve. I lost almost 30 pounds on that mission trip. And the last excerpt from a letter I want to share with you is dated from July 28th, one of the last letters she wrote to me. I can't express how much I miss you. I dreamed about you. You came home and you had to leave soon and I was hugging you a hundred times. But still it was not enough and I woke up. Steve, I miss you so much. And as a parent now, I have a better understanding of what that means to let a child go and say, follow the calling of God on your life. Ultimately, you don't belong to me. You belong to the Lord. It's a harrowing journey, isn't it? Parenting kids. Will my kids be safe? Will they make good choices in their life? Will they find someone who will love them as much as I love them? And I don't think any of us are prepared for how hard this journey is. And you don't have to be a parent to understand how painful this is because anyone who attempts to ever love anybody knows how much it can break your heart. Because in this broken world, there are plenty of ways that heartbreak can happen when you love somebody, isn't there? But not loving is not really an option, is it? As C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Four Loves, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your self, selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. As Lewis says, love makes us vulnerable to a broken heart. But the only other option to that is to have an unbreakable heart. And that is no way to live your life. And that's why I want to close with this simple thought. That what I see in this picture of Jesus at the cross with John and his mother looking on as he is dying. What I see is something so beautiful in that we have a God who is not removed from the pain that we go through in this life, nor does he promise us that he is always going to rescue us from our own suffering or our own pain. But what we do see at the heart of this Christmas message 
is a God who entered into our world of pain and experienced it himself in order to give us a hope that is beyond our own pain and brokenness. As Paul would write to the Romans, Romans 8, 31 to 32, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Let's pray. The worship team is going to come and lead us in a few closing songs. But before we do that, let me just offer up to uh, God a prayer on our behalf. Let's pray.